This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. To those of you who went to our website last week expecting to find a new show and not finding one, well, we're sorry. If you were listening on terrestrial radio at the usual hour, and, and we hope that many of you were, there was a show. For that, we would like to thank Guy, who has been acting as a bridge between this program and the good people at KDVS for quite some time. Since we're talking about that, I should also mention our thanks should go out to Jeff G., who filled in for us in August while yours truly was cavorting around the African continent. Our thanks go to the both of you gentlemen. To those of you listening on terrestrial radio last week, we would note that uh, Guy replayed our original broadcast from 2007 with uh, Chris Hedges in the wake of his book, American Fascists. It is sort of sad to contemplate that 15 years later, the kind of warnings that Chris was uh, putting out about the rise of fascist elements in America seem more on the money than we would have hoped back then. When you see video of guys cavorting around the nation's capital, breaking windows, wearing t-shirts that say Camp Auschwitz on it, well, you have to realize that Mr. Hedges was and is onto something. We also did a, uh, well, Guy aired for us a, uh, a reprise of our chat with David Talbot from 2011 in the wake of his book, Double Dog, the story of Smedley Butler, who was America's most decorated I think most decorated soldier, certainly the most decorated Marine, and he was a, I think, I think he won two Congressional Medals of Honor. And he also saved the country from a coup d'etat that was brewing in 1932. I guess it was 33. Small matter. At any rate, a lot of bankers weren't too happy with what FDR was trying to do, and they were looking for someone to remove him from office. Thanks to Smedley Butler blowing the whistle, they did not succeed. But, you know, the idea of a coup d'etat in America, well, unfortunately, 11 years after our interview with David Talbot, that looks even more concerning. And believe you me, in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking about concerning political issues. Michael Trachtman, attorney and author extraordinaire, is going to return to this program now that the Supreme Court is back in session again. We're going to have a little bit more to say about that before this show's over. Trackman is going to be one heck of an interesting guest, and we hope to bring him on in the next, I don't know, week or two. Our good friend Greg Palast has agreed to come back and talk to us about the upcoming midterm elections. He has a new documentary out, and we're sure he'll be happy to talk to us about that. And I, I bet that's a documentary a lot of us are going to want to see. We certainly are. And our good pal Stephen J. Harper is going to come back to talk about, uh, well, things related to political mishaps in America that seem to surround Donald J. Trump. We're a little concerned about the fact that people keep saying, oh, the noose is tightening. Boy, they're getting closer and closer. Boy, Donald Trump, he may be in trouble. And yet, no indictments seem to come down. We should do a slight diversion into political things at this moment, since people are going to jail at some time for years for the January 6th insurrection. And yet, oddly... The man whose marching orders they were following so far has faced no criminal penalties for that effort to overturn the American democracy. It's certainly my hope that that changes soon. 
But let's get out of politics, uh, at least for the moment, and talk about, well, first of all, some follow-up. We mentioned in this program several weeks ago that, uh, that this correspondent thought he had laid eyes upon Queen Elizabeth II in Brisbane, Australia, back in 1988. But I was sad to note that my memory didn't seem to be quite certain on it. So I checked with a friend of mine who was there, Jim McCaslin, and Jim confirmed, yes, don't you remember? And I said, well, no, actually, I don't exactly. He even produced a picture that he took of the Queen. And I'm finding that to be proof enough that, that I did indeed lay eyes on uh, Britain's late great monarch. Now, we have reached out to the royal family, and it is our hope that in the weeks to come, we may be able to bring um, Charles III on this show, or at least a reasonable facsimile thereof. And we're thinking that's going to be fun. And I also have some follow-up on the question that I posed on this show a few weeks back about what was going on in Dubai. Why is Dubai booming? The Economist magazine uh, decided to answer that question by summarizing for me and, and others what was going on in the United Arab Emirates that uh, is producing this incredible boom. Not going to go into it at great length, but one of the basic reasons is oil and what's going on in the oil market with the invasion in Ukraine. Of course, Dubai's been booming for years, and that seems to have to do with the fact that it is open to business to everyone. In particular, Russian oligarchs who have been hemmed in by uh, sanctions in Europe and the United States. This does go a long way toward explaining this incredible economic boom taking place in this godforsaken location. It's also apparently benefiting from the fact that a lot of uh, companies have been pulled out of Moscow and relocated in Dubai, such as Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. It has also apparently helped Dubai that Brexit has reduced the stature of London as a, uh, a center for commerce in Europe. Said the economist, Dubai is the last financial hub where just about anyone can do business with just about anyone else. Noted the magazine, the banking system there is trustworthy and well-capitalized. The income tax rate is a hard-to-beat 0%. It was noted that scorching weather might be a shock, to say the least, we would add. But Dubai offers all the amenities the Russian emigres would expect. Designer brands and malls, renowned chefs in hotels, luxury homes with domestic help. And in case you're keeping score, diners at new restaurants in this financial district can order a baked potato stuffed with caviar for a mere 2,610 dirhams, which for you works out to 710 bucks. I just got a few samosas. And in one final bit of follow-up, which takes us out of the dreadful world of politics and into the rather cooler world of science, it turned out that NASA's DART probe was a smashing success. Literally. DART, which stood for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, smacked a probe weighing about 600 kilos into the smaller of two asteroids which orbit each other about 11 million miles from where we are. Anyway, we talked in this program about how cool the science was on this particular mission. NASA and the rest of planet Earth wanted to see if you, what would happen if you crashed a refrigerator-sized spacecraft at 14,000 miles an hour into a rock that would cause trouble if it were to hit the Earth. In this case, Dimorphos... 160 meters across, orbits Didymos, which is some 180 meters across. It all went as planned. There was a huge explosion when the smaller asteroid was struck. They'd conveniently let another, what's called CubeSat, recording 
probe to witness the whole thing, and it, it probably did a, a splendid job. Observers here on Earth were also able to record the smack of the object onto um, the asteroid. And if you have some time, I recommend you, you pull up what it looked like. Because it's pretty dramatic, even, even here from Earth, what we could see. Yeah, I thought I heard something. No, there's no sound in space. Oh. Anyway, the Washington Examiner, a paper we don't quote from very often, did say that beyond potentially saving human civilization, the DART mission may accomplish something else, reminding NASA skeptics that there's a good reason to support an ample budget for the space agency. There are some things that private companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX just won't do, like putting saving humankind at the top of their list of priorities. NASA, properly managed, is a good investment. Of course, this does raise the question of why do we have a space force? Donald Trump managed to get another branch of the military in place, which so far Joe Biden has done nothing to prune back, and it's called a space force. Shouldn't they be up there smacking asteroids instead of NASA? Mr. Miller suggests that he would rather trust NASA to deal with asteroids and leave the space force to deal with alien invasions. And moving from outer space into inner space, I have a little item uh, regarding food, eating, and our intestinal biomes that I think deserves a bit of intention. Pretty darn fascinating article. It was titled Gut Reactions in the current edition of The Economist with the subheadline: A Special Diet Made from Cheap Ingredients Treats Childhood Malnutrition by Encouraging the Growth of the Right Intestinal Bacteria. Now, it certainly seems obvious that if you want to deal with uh, with malnutrition in children, the the best way to do that is to provide more nutrition. But evidence is emerging that if you can coax the right bacteria to, to flourish in the intestines of these children, they will better be able to process what food they are given. I mean, it only makes sense. The studies they cited focused on quashicor, which is a very severe type of starvation, malnutrition in children, noted the magazine that while the underlying cause of Kwashiorkor is unquestionably an insufficiency of nutrients, undernourished individuals who might otherwise remain free of its symptoms, which are bloated belly, loss of muscle mass, stunted growth, brittle hair, may be tipped over the edge by an unbalanced microbiome. These studies are showing that the microbiomes in children develops with time and that uh, Children that had the microbiomes of, of, say, a one-year-old would run into trouble if they still had similar microbes at age three. It turns out that there's quite a bit of this problem of, of malnutrition in Bangladesh, and it's probably not a coincidence that Bangladesh has a third of its children born by cesarean section, which is compared with only around a quarter, even in rich Western countries. Not sure why it is cesareans are so popular there, but they are. And if you're born by cesarean, you don't get exposed to the bacteria that are found in the intestinal tracts of mothers by virtue of passing through the birth canal. And what do you know? Oral antibiotics also can damage gut microbiomes by killing bacteria that are useful, along with all the ones that are not. And uh, in Bangladesh, drugs are often used to compensate for poor sanitation. And thus, antibiotics can be bought in pharmacies and markets without a prescription. And, of course, doctors hand them out liberally. 
At any rate, scientists have been experimenting with different types of foodstuffs that, for whatever reason, seem to promote the right kind of bacteria. This seems pretty likely to pay dividends because it turns out a lot of children that are given supplemental nutrition, when they are paired back after that, they revert immediately back to having the same problems that they did. Whereas the ones that were given this experimental diet and grew the right types of bacteria were able to withstand uh, the future restrictions much better. I'm not sure I'm explaining this as well as I could, but um, for more information, check out the article in The Economist or look it up online. This is very, very promising and may do a great deal to help children in certain parts of the world. Of course, then what we're going to do down the road when we have more children survive to adulthood and the population continues to grow is a different story entirely. I recently stumbled, I recently stumbled online to a video presentation, which um, I think was being put on by the American Enterprise Institute, where some stooge from Harvard was explaining why it was that all this talk about, you know, human overpopulation on planet Earth was all poppycock. We need more people. It was the thrust of his argument. I must confess, I didn't listen to it because I found it too mind-bogglingly stupid to consider. But if any of you did and want to give us some feedback, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. You know, I do want to see if we can work our way out of politics, at least for the rest of this segment. I was struck by the fact that while Mr. Millen and I were out of state for a week, during that week, gas prices apparently leapt up $1 a gallon. Why California's gas prices should make this leap seems something of a mystery. My immediate thought, right or wrong, was that there's something political behind this, and it must be because we have midterm elections coming up on November 8th. It occurred to me that the oil companies may want to be favoring Republicans who want to focus the nation's attention on the fact that uh, gas prices are up. It's just a speculation on my part, but let me quote here from the voter guide, some of the candidate statements. Mark Muser, Republican, would like to be our next senator, and his campaign statement includes the following. I will fight for American energy independence to lower gas prices. Rob Bernoski, Republican, who would like to be our Secretary of State, says he wants to make it easier to elect leaders to fight high gas and food prices. Hmm, which leaders do you suppose those are? How about our candidate for controller, Len He Chen, Republican, complaining about the $20 billion in fraudulent unemployment benefits paid out in California. He said that could have paid for every Californian's state gas taxes for over a year. Gas again, you know. In the candidate statement for treasurer, Jack Guerrero, Republican, asks, are you happy with $7 gas? And in the candidate statement for the insurance commissioner, Robert Howell, the Republican, points out that hundreds of thousands of Californians are fleeing our state because of $6 a gallon gas prices. None of these guys, by the way, seem to make any statement about how they're going to, you know, clip the wings of the oil companies that are making record profits currently, but um, maybe none of them will get elected. It's California. We don't elect too many Republicans. I'm pretty sure that Angelo Sakopoulos' daughter, Eleni Koulinakis, is going to get reelected as our lieutenant governor given that her opponent, Angela Underwood-Jacobs, has no candidate statement to offer currently. Of course, they do say no news is good news. Mr. Mill likes to cite that familiar quote that it's better to keep your mouth shut, let people think you're a fool, than to open it up and remove all doubts. 
I think I want to jump at this point into the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think we have enough to cycle through a couple of these, Mr. McMillan. We start off by noting that it was a good week last week for believing in your client with the news that Johnny Depp is dating Joel Rich, the lawyer who defended him in his failed 2018 libel suit against the UK tabloid The Sun, which had referred to him as a wife beater. It was, on the other hand, a bad week, one week last month, for tourism, at least Chinese tourism, after Wu Zhenyao, chief epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control, responded to China's first known case of monkeypox by urging citizens to exercise vigilance and avoid skin-to-skin contact with foreigners. And it was surely an ugly week, a couple weeks back, for horse trading, in quotes with the airing of claims in a new book by New York Times reporter David Enrich that Donald Trump once tried to pay a $2 million legal bill by giving his lawyer a horse. (laughs) Apparently, the lawyer stammered, This isn't the 1800s. You can't pay me with a horse. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Right now, we feel pretty certain that if it had been a talking horse that Donald Trump wanted to offer, the lawyer might have said yes. But apparently he had no access to Mr. Ed. Oh. All right, round two. Apparently it was a good week, currently, for draft dodging with reports that Russian men were breaking their limbs in order to avoid being conscripted into the Ukraine war. Google has reported a surge in searches for how to break an arm at home. And apparently we understand Russian men are flooding the borders of Finland and other nations trying to get out of the country before Vladimir Putin can put them to work getting blown up in Ukraine. And we're not sure exactly what week this took place in, but it was apparently a bad week that week for elitism with the news that an Alabama poll worker was fired after asking the state's Republican Party chairman to show ID before voting. The GOP chairman, John Wall, admits he complained about poll worker Clyde Martin, who had repeatedly asked Wall and his family to present IDs required by state law. I felt like I was being harassed, said Wall. Martin says he still can't understand why Wall, a proponent of voter ID laws, wanted preferential treatment. And apparently it was an ugly week recently for financial due diligence with this story. A con artist masquerading as a billionaire rabbi astrologer tricked Lord and Taylor into entertaining an offer to buy the company, according to Bob Van Boris writing in Bloomberg. Federal prosecutors are alleging that Russell Dwayne Lewis stole the identity of a man named Clifford Getz, used the social security number of a 13-year-old boy in Ohio, forged a passport, and reinvented himself as a deal-making billionaire, quote, rabbi, unquote, who ran an investment firm out of Beverly Hills. Lewis also claimed he'd worked for the Central and Los Angeles Police Departments, 
And the story was convincing enough to the people at Lord & Taylor that the retailer, now in bankruptcy, spent much of August 2020 in phone calls with Lewis trying to figure out if a deal was workable. Lewis offered $290 million, an outrageously high bid, and presented a forged bank letter listing hundreds of millions of euros in assets. We're certainly not sure what Mr. Russell Dwayne Lewis was thinking in all of this. But having seen Donald J. Trump create something from nothing and over and over again, perhaps he was inspired. I do know this, dear listener. If you're approached by anyone claiming to be a billionaire rabbi astrologer, we strongly suggest that you not trust him with your money. Unless you're a Libra, of course, because I guess, I guess Libras tend to be good with money. I'm making this up, just like all good astrologers do. And speaking of the stars, and how's that for a segue? Yours truly was shocked, shocked recently by an item that appeared in Sky and Telescope. If you like looking up at the night sky, and we hope that you do, this is the time of year when you can look east after sunset and spot the Great Square of Pegasus. These days you will be helped in locating the Great Square by the location of Jupiter, which apparently is making its closest approach to Earth since like 1962. It is a blazing beacon in the sky at night. Please go out and check it out. Dragging behind Pegasus to the left, you'll find Andromeda, and I'm sad to note that although I used to be able to see the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye in the East Bay of San Francisco, that really sadly is no longer possible. Light pollution. But to the left of Andromeda, you people of an astronomic bit probably are familiar with the constellation Perseus. We admit it doesn't look so much like a warrior as it does like a horn of plenty, but it is a pretty bright collection of stars, and one star to the right is rather famously called Algol. Well, rather famously in some circles. Algol means the ghoul in Arabic. Algol has an interesting trick, which is talked about in the current edition of Sky and Telescope, in that it's actually a double star, and when the dimmer of the two stars partially eclipses the brighter, it does a marked dip in brightness. If you take the time to find out when these minimi of Algol are taking place and watch what happens, apparently you can, you can clearly see that it does do this little dip. I have always assumed, and I bet I'm not alone, I have always assumed that the ancient astronomers had observed this little dip in brightness, thought it was kind of creepy, and therefore called it the ghoul. But notes, Sky and Telescope. Surprisingly, there are no records of its variability being noted by the ancient Greeks or by the medieval Arabs. It wasn't until 1667 when the Italian astronomer Geminiano Montanari first recognized Algol's brightness changes. And it wasn't until 1782 that the English observer John Goodrick first established the regularity of the star's period. Are you shocked? I was. I'm also shocked and horrified by this following item from astronomy. They're attempting to put up, or they're talking about putting up, a massive satellite that could outshine all the stars and planets and be brighter than Venus. The Blue Walker 3 satellite, built by the Texas-based firm A&T Space Mobile, in fact launched on September 10th. It's designed to test the company's technology to beam cellular connections, including 4G or 5G, directly from a satellite to mobile phones enabling users to receive mobile coverage in remote locations. Now, we'd be the first to admit, say you're in Upper Volta, or 
Sierra Leone, and you'd like to watch reruns of Mr. Ed, or maybe, let's say, I Dream of Genie, this technology will enable you to do so at the cost of disrupting radio astronomy, given that the, this satellite involves powerful radio beams connecting with the phone. And, of course, when they unfold this satellite, it turns out to be brighter than the planet Venus. This is not going to make a lot of astronomers happy trying to photograph the heavens. And, of course, we need more space junk up there like we need more cancer. Now, apparently the FCC proposed a rule last week that would require satellite operators like SpaceX to remove any defunct satellites from orbit, quote, as soon as practicable, unquote, or within five years. The agency is hoping to decrease space debris, which is expected to worsen as the skies get more crowded with commercial objects beaming their signals back to Earth. The FCC says there are now 4,800 satellites, the vast majority in low Earth orbit. SpaceX alone, alone, is seeking permission for 30,000 more, mainly to supply its Starlink internet service. Currently, there is now only a voluntary 25-year standard for removing dead satellites. And nowhere in the pieces explain how it is you're going to actually remove these dead satellites. I'm pretty sure that sending up a garbage pickup isn't going to work. And continuing on our space mode, we would note, sadly, the passing of astronomer Frank Drake. Frank Drake died on September 2nd at age 92. He was the pioneer in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which we now refer to as SETI. Frank Drake was a radio astronomer, you know, of the kind that, you know, Elon Musk is about to screw up. Drake worked at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenback, West Virginia, which is an area that is, you're forbidden to take any electronic device within miles of Greenbank, is my understanding. But as you well know, you don't need to have, you know, optics in order to do some good astronomy. You can use radio waves and other parts of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum to learn things about what's going on up there. Frank Drake was fascinated with the possibility that there might be other civilizations on other planets and that we might be able to pick up their signals if we listen carefully. Back in the 60s, he made a deliberate effort to listen to what might be coming from the stars Tau, Ceti, and Epsilon Eridani, which are kind of dead ringers for our own sun. And apparently all he was able to receive were television signals from Epsilon Eridani from their hit TV show, My Mother-in-Law is from Zoltar, eh, which sadly didn't happen. In 1974, Frank Drake decided to turn around. He used the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico and sent the first interstellar message from space deliberately directed out toward Messier 13, a globular star cluster 25,000 years away. In simple binary coding, he described where the message was from and what humans were like. He also collaborated with Carl Sagan, then America's best-known astronomer, to attach plaques to the Pioneer spacecraft and images and audio recordings to the Voyagers, which describe Earth and Earthlings. Anyway, we applaud Frank Drake's efforts. And we approve of his Drake equation, which attempts to uh, guesstimate how many civilizations might be out there. Although we do want to point out that while Frank Drake spent a lot of time searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, no less than Stephen Hawking frequently pointed out that he wasn't quite sure that we'd found it here on Earth yet. And if we're going to paraphrase Stephen J. Hawking, we should, I think, end this segment with some pithy quotes from one of our all-time favorites, H.L. Mencken. 
Mencken's name came up recently and I decided to pull up some, some of his more pithy observations. And I think I'll cite three of them. Said Mencken, It is the classic fallacy of our time that a moron run through university and decorated with a PhD will thereby cease to be a moron. Here's one I really like. Morality is doing what is right no matter what you were told. Religion is doing what you are told no matter what is right. And finally, when somebody says it's not about the money, it's about the money. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll be right back with more fun. We do want to offer one slight correction to Mencken. That when Radio Parallax says it's not about the money, well, the fact is it's not about the money. 